Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. I am very excited about my interview today. Anjali Kumar wears many, many hats. She is an author, an attorney, advisor, a speaker, an angel investor, and my favorite title, an idea acupuncturist, which is fantastic. I think I'm going to take that from her. She has also become a fellow podcaster. She has just launched The Important Things with Bobby Brown. Yes, the Bobby Brown and Anjali Kumar, and they focus on how you can really lead a life of fulfillment. I think, you know, the ongoing pandemic has really given us all this opportunity to really examine what matters most to us and bring us true joy. Um, and so they have these fantastic guests and talk about what really fulfills your life. And it's really cool. So check it out on all podcast platforms. I hope you enjoy my interview with Anjali Kumar. Okay, so Anjali, author, attorney, advisor, speaker, investor, my favorite, idea, acupuncturist. <laughs> I like that. All true. And then now podcaster, best thing ever. <laughs> Remember back in the day when you felt like you couldn't, you had to have one hat only and focus on it? Isn't it amazing how we can have so many hats now? Yes, it's very amazing. And it's such a relief because I think I spent so much of my life trying to fit into one box and ended up just kind of jumping around from box to box, realizing none of them quite fit. And in the past few years, I've just given myself permission to be boxless, I guess, and just sort of do all the things that are interesting to me and to let my container be the common factor and that that's enough. Totally. I am literally following your footsteps. I'm not author yet, but you know, ex-retired attorney, an advisor to my kids right now. <laughs> but yeah, you know, becoming a speaker, the podcasting thing. And so I, like you, have been searching for 40 years on what my calling was and kind of the reason I started this podcast because I was tuckered out from my many different careers and my many different moves. And so first... I want to say congrats on the important things with Bobby Brown Thank and Anjali you. Kumar. I listened to the trailer and a little bit of the first episode. Love it. I think everyone wants to know how you guys met and became partners, friends, and then the idea of the podcast. How did that first come about? Sure. Well, so Bobby and I have known each other for a while now. We met probably eight or nine years ago uh, when she came to speak at Google. Um, and I was an attorney there at the time and had also curated some of the speaker series that we that we did and I believe still goes on. There. I love the Quest Love one, by the way. That, <laughs> that, that was, was so awesome. You're like, I don't have, we don't have time. Just yeah. <laughs> He's amazing. Fun. He's yeah. the best. Yeah. Um, so Bobby had come in at the invitation of somebody else, actually, of a colleague, and I came, you know, just to hear her speak. And listening to her, I was just so inspired. She's so interesting. She's so humble. She's so accomplished. Um, she's all about her family, all about her community and giving back, and just a really interesting woman. And hearing her speak, I was really 
kind of swept up in her story and felt there were so many pieces that resonated apart from the fact that I have not built a billion dollar brand, but you know, starting in my 20s. But apart from that minor detail, uh, there are a lot of parallels. We were both raised outside of Chicago, you know, just all married for many years to the same person, raising children, all that kind of thing, living in the same area. And so I approached her after we started chatting and then I kind of was like, would you ever consider mentoring me? Which was a question I had never asked somebody. I was kind of mortified looking back that I did that, but I really felt like this kinship with her and it was clearly a mutual feeling. And she was like, yeah, let's hang out. You know, and so we, so we started just hanging out and I started calling her for advice here and there. And we just became friends over the past many years. Um, and I still think of her very much as a mentor. Um, I think we've also evolved into peers as much as you can be a peer of somebody as amazing as Bobby Brown. Um, right. He's just somebody I really admire and look up to a lot and have learned so much from. And so then last spring, uh, you know, kind of in the height of the pandemic, she was rethinking her podcast. She's been doing it for a few years. And she called me out of the blue and was like, hey, I want to do things differently for the next season. And I'm thinking I want to bring on a co-host and you're the only person that came to mind. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, I was never looking to get into the podcast game, frankly. Like I used to do radio in high school and college. Um, so I've always been told I have a voice for radio, but we'll you see. do. I was just about to interrupt you and say you have a voice for podcasts. Thank you. Thank very, you. A very, the highest compliment I can give you. So. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but you know, it's a really crowded space, obviously, and it wasn't something that I was really thinking about, not recently at least. And so it was really nice setup just to kind of walk into her platform and her audience and, you know, have equipment sent to me by iHeart and all this stuff and sort of totally. just, you know, have the situation presented. And so we've been having a lot of fun doing it. We've been recording for a few months now yeah. and um, it's been really fun. How are you, how are you finding it? And, um, you know, I've been doing this on and off for four years, but really hardcore for the past two years. Learned a lot as an independent uh, podcaster. That's a whole other like crazy wild, wild west path. How are you finding it and what are you finding most surprising about podcasting? Oh, so I would love that. I mean, I feel like you can give me a ton of advice, so I want to hear it. Um, it's been it's been super fun. I mean, the guests have been mostly friends of ours or a degree of separation. So we've been, you know, going to people within arm's reach. So we haven't really cast a super wide nut to to date. Um, and I think that's made it a lot easier just because we have friendly people on the other side that we're interviewing. And so right. all of our guests have been really gracious and patient with us as we work out our kinks um, because we've never co-hosted together. We've never worked together. So, you know, just like right. not tripping on each other and like not interrupting each other or whatever, just, or just, but also keeping it natural. Um, so that's been really great. And I would say the most surprising thing um, is how hard it is. You know, it's actually a lot harder than it sounds. I think every third person seems to have a podcast now and it's not easy. It's really hard to get in there and to really ask thoughtful questions that they haven't been asked before, especially the kinds of folks that we're talking to do a lot of this, right? They're interviewed all the time. They're super media trained and to get them off script a bit um, and to go a little deeper or have a fun conversation right. and have them feel uh, like it's just like a conversation amongst friends. It's not an easy thing to do. And so I think that's that's the fun challenge of it. I love, love everything you just said. Totally 100% on board with that. Um, this, you're my 86th interview. I wow. <laughs> definitely will tell you my first 25 interviews, I was like, what am I doing? Like, just, I think when you first start off is just kind of, obviously you have a co-host like Bobby who has done it before, but still 
working together for the first time, I feel like it's kind of a crapshoot at the beginning. You just have to figure it out. And then I think I got into the rhythm the past year, really. It takes a while, I yeah, think. Yeah, it does. And I feel like the only, I've had many interviews where you read the guest and you just know they're not going to open up and you kind of have to go with it. But my goal as a host, and I'm sure you know this, you've, you've been speaking and, and, and advising people for a long time, is to be vulnerable. As long as I'm open, I am honest and open about who I am, I feel like most of my guests feel comfortable then, you know? Yeah. And like you guys, I started off with friends. Otherwise, who was going to talk to me? <laughs> you know, like it's only my friends who love me. I'm like, you guys have no choice. So, right. well, congrats. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And, and Bobby Brown uh, couldn't, couldn't think of a better co-host. So yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. I'm very lucky. Yeah. It's been great. So then slightly reserved, I of course went to your site. That's kind of your, your hub for everything that you do, creative, entrepreneurial, legal. And I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs on here. Obviously, it's a South Asian podcast, a lot of South Asian entrepreneurs. And there's many, many South Asian entrepreneurs nowadays, especially women. Mm -hmm. You are obviously advising uh, a lot of entrepreneurs. And so from the other side of things, I'm curious to hear from you the dirty stuff. Like, What do you think is the number one mistake entrepreneurs make? And then... What do you look for when you when you want to advise an entrepreneur? Do you look for the person? Do you look for the idea? Like, what's the most important aspect of it? Sure. Well, I'll start with that. Um, what I look for is really a connection with the person, and it, that doesn't mean that I know them from before necessarily, but that there's a real authentic uh, line of communication and connection between myself and the person I'm advising, because especially the stage that I've chosen to advise, it tends to be very early stage of an idea. So it's kind of pre-seed funding to a series A, sort of the sweet spot of what I've been advising right. um, on or the, the stage of a company. And so at that point, it really is you're taking a bet on the person, right? right? And if they don't want to hear my advice, there's no point in my advising them, right? There's not that formality yet. I'm not an investor in their business. I'm not, um, you know, sitting on their board. They're not accountable to me in that way. And so they have to actually want my advice and feel like I have something to offer. So right. to me, it's been pretty clear that the sort of um, the luxury, I guess, of my background and my reputation at this point is that people who are finding their way to me through whatever channels, it's pretty, you know, they they come in the door, they're already seeking my advice. There's a right they, synergy already. Yeah. Like they already yeah. want me. I'm not like selling them on something. And if right. they feel like I need to like prove why I'm valuable, then they're probably not the right fit. Not in a dismissive way, but more like people are coming because they right. are already seeking me out in some way or somebody's told them to talk to me or whatever it is, um, or they've heard me speak or whatever. So I would say it's definitely taking a bet on the founder. I okay. definitely need to be interested in the idea and ideally love the idea because it's harder to give advice on something that you just don't know anything about or can't right. actually... Um, relate to. So, you know, it's usually a problem that I think is interesting to solve and that I'm excited to help that founder address in some meaningful way. Um, there's a, a pretty strong red thread through most of the companies I'm working with where they're, you know, solving a problem that I think makes the world a better place in nice. some right. meaningful way, or at least is not adding more collateral damage to whatever we're already doing for our planet. Jesus, a lot. <laughs> I'm like, where do we start with that? Yeah. Whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's mostly what I look for, but I think it's really just a connection where they're going to seek my advice and, you know, they don't have to take it. That's up to them, but where, right. uh, where my voice in the choir will actually be useful. Uh, have you ever kind of bet on a founder 
uh, based on just, you know, liking them, connecting with them, but didn't it didn't work out? I mean, I think it depends on how you define not working out. You know, I don't think I've had any, you know, for sort of like blow ups with a founder okay. where it's been difficult. I think I've gotten um, pretty good. My spidey sense is pretty well honed at this point to sure, yeah. know who I'll be able to connect to and who actually wants my help. And yeah, I mean, I, it's not like, it's not a contentious relationship, right? So what I'm doing is additive, hopefully, to what they're doing. Right. And so it's not usually fraught with that kind of contention. Right. You know, I'm that's not good. like at the board level trying to push out the founder or anything. Right. Like that. that's not, no, no need for that in, added stress. Yeah, in life, not right? in the advisor <laughs> role. Yeah, maybe in other roles, but not in, not in my advisor role. Not in your role. Yeah. And then if I were to come to you and tell you, Anjali, be my mentor, which I might do after this, <laughs> I want to start a network, my own media network. What, was the, what would be the first thing you would tell me as a first-time entrepreneur? Ooh, a media network. Well, I would think I would want to unpack the idea more and really understand what you mean by that, like how okay. you're defining that and how many, uh, you know, like what the vision is, um, why you think this is a problem needing solving and why you're the right person to solve it, like right. really unpack that. Um, what your competitive landscape looks like. Like, is there somebody else who's already doing something like this that you could join forces with? Are they truly a competitor um, aligning yourself or defining yourself differently with um, whatever's already out there and understanding what that looks like? Yeah, I think that's where I would start. start. All right, guys, you heard it here first <laughs> in case this actually happens. Okay, so, and, and this is just fun curiosity, women versus men entrepreneurs. What do you see as the biggest difference uh, when you talk to male founders and female founders, good or bad, or both? You know, I don't know that there's such a difference. I advise a lot of both across the spectrum. Um, yeah. Different genders, different ethnic backgrounds, you know, different like ages. It's a really nice mix. Um, I think the women tend to, in general, have really dug deep on the sector before they've ever gotten to the point of incubating an idea like they really know every single detail and they are um they're really in the weeds of their business like they really right. understand every fact and figure um some of the men tend to have a a, a bigger general idea and being will, willing to pivot more you know easily because they kind of have the the larger goal in mind right. and the details of how they're going to get there might be a bit more fluid um so that that might be one of the differences, but I don't know if it would be fully across gender lines. That it's seems probably, like it makes sense, though, just based on yeah. typic, typical male female behavior. Like it would seem, as a woman, we would want to have everything down a little bit more before we like were to ask for help or seek for advice. Where it feels it feels like in general, men are a little bit less afraid to just be like, "This is my idea. I don't need to know." everything kind of thing. Yeah. It seems like a, it's a, it's a little bit generalized, obviously. I don't know that it's fully true, but I think if I was, you know, if I was to pick one thing that I sort of see, that might be one thing, but it's not, you know, black and white by any means. Right. Right. Totally. Um, and the other thing when I was looking at, uh, slightly reserved, I, I loved because this is a South Asian podcast. So we obviously talk about, you know, DEI diversity, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, with, with South Asian women. And I love how, you mentioned that you wanted to start thinking about diversity, not as a moral obligation, but as like a untapped and proven means for business to increase creativity and produce higher revenues and and just make it more of a a logical 
obvious thing that we need to do. How do we do this? How do we start thinking this way? Or is this just a matter of starting the conversation? Yeah, you know, I think I need to rethink that because I I used to be, well, I think it's a moral obligation. It's just the right thing to do. Right. And it's sort of, you know, now I've spent so much time trying to justify the business case. And I think so many of my contemporaries and people much wiser than me on this topic or much more learned than me um, are spending a lot of time trying to convince businesses that it's the right thing to do or why it's good for business right? Um, and good for their employees and all that kind of thing. And now I'm sort of coming full circle to like, it's just the right thing to do, like enough right. already. Okay. Like we, you know, it's like if at this point, if they don't want to do it, it's not hard. You know, it's kind of like they they just don't want to do it. And so we can, you know, we're figuring out how to put people into Mars. Like, I don't think this is a hard problem to solve. Like this is, we can do this. And so at some point, I think people just aren't prioritizing it. Right. You know, if they're not doing it, that's where I kind of land. I mean, you're obviously involved in, in many different industries and, and again, wearing different hats. Are you seeing it happen? Because it feels like it's happening. I think it's happening. I think it's not happening as quickly as it should. And I think, you know, there's there's certain industries that are trying a bit more or being more public about what they're doing. Right. Um, but I think until we see more folks at the top that are diverse, uh, wh- however you define that, you know, that word, um, and so across many different measures and metrics, the the ultimate like the rank and file won't change. Yeah, still a long way to chip away, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's oh happening. My gosh, it's happening slowly but surely. Um, so of course, I listened to your TED talk. Oh, thank you, amazing, loved it. I know um, in there you said you are Jane, uh, mm-hmm. grew up Jane. You know, the past few years have been a little bit crazy, tumultuous, kind of super negative. Everyone's angry. I know at the end of the TED talk, you mentioned that you found that all of us are basically all the same. Are you still holding onto that right now during these past few years? Do you feel like you are still in search for something to believe in again because of everything we've all gone through? Yes and yes. Yes, okay. so I think very much uh, still holding on to that. Um, I think the past few years have just proven it out more and more, sort of the conclusions of my talk in the book. Of um, that everyone's searching for the same things, which is health, happiness, and love, and in that order. You know, it's like right. if the past few years did not give more data in in support of my conclusion from a few years ago, um, I don't know what will. So I think you know, I've just I've just been proven right, you know, on a global right. scale. And sorry, it took a global pandemic to prove me right, but I think yeah. my my anecdotal research was now supported by additional evidence. Yes. Um. So I think. Over yeah. and over again, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, but yeah. yeah, it's true. You know, like that's, I think the past few years have, have only, you know, made us all really realize it. I'm sorry, I forgot your second question. Still searching. Yeah. Is that, is this yeah. something that's still in the back of your mind? Because I mean, I grew up Hindu, Jane, mm-hmm. we're sister religions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm very curious because I, A, wondering, are your parents religious? Did you grow up in a religious household? Um, And how did that play into your daily life? Because for me, my parents, super Hindu, super religious. I'm not as much as they are. I think a lot of us, like you mentioned in your TED Talk and and most likely your book, a lot of us are spiritual. I relate to Hinduism because I grew up with it. And I I think you have a daughter, I believe. Mm -hmm. I have two daughters and I, I want to teach them about our religion because I feel like it's such a big bucket to fill. I don't want that to be empty. I want them. I want to fill it with what I know and what I'm close to, and then let them decide in the future yeah. what they want to do with it. Um, and I'm kind of wondering 
how it played a role growing up and then how it's playing a role as a mother. Yeah, you know, I think um, it for me, it was very cultural. We didn't grow up super religious, but we didn't okay. grow up not religious. I think my parents did a really nice job of having it just be a part of our lives that was somewhat seamless, but not really imposed on us in a way that felt dogmatic or felt burdensome. And they raised us with a very open view towards religion and spirituality, I think very consistent with the kind of core teachings of Jainism, uh, which I didn't know until I sort of understood it as an adult. But I think yeah. the fact that I went to Catholic school, the fact that we went to the Hindu temple all the time, um, you know, that we were exposed to mosques, that we were just like, it was all around us. And it was right. never uh, a situation where they were like, oh, well, what we believe is better or the right thing as compared to what anyone else believes. They're just like, well, everybody believes something a little bit different, but it's all kind of the same, right? They were, that yep. was what I was raised with, even if it wasn't said so clearly. Got it. Um, and I think that's what I'm trying to raise our daughter with. Both my husband and I are trying to raise her with that same philosophy that it's like, this is what we were raised with. Here are the traditions that we were raised with. And so we're right. doing a very imperfect job of passing that on. And I think the beauty of our religions is that it is so cultural, like that, you know, it's the, the holidays and everything has this religious right. element to it. So it's kind of separating it out is almost impossible. Like saying, right. I'm not Hindu or Jan is like saying I'm not Indian because it's so part of my experience of being Indian. And I very think, intertwined. Very. Yeah. And I think that's true of somebody who's Catholic or, you know, anything else. A, a, uh, Muslim or any other religion right. in India, that part of their experience of being Indian, their religion and spirituality sort of woven into that um, experience in, a, in an interesting way. And I love that about India. Um, and I hope that it stays that way, <laughs> that we stay, you know, mixed and, and sort of at peace. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've been trying to raise her with the same thing. I think she, you know, if you really kind of challenged her to explain any of it. I think she would have no idea where to start. Like, I don't know that she fully understands a religion, but she's got the the kind of core right. threads of it. You know, she'll, she'll figure it out for herself too. Well, she's gotten the base from you guys, right? Yeah. And yeah, at the end I of the day, so. they will decide what they decide. You yeah, know? that's um, exactly right. So, I mean, I, I didn't have a decision. My parents were really intense. I went to like Hindu camps every summer, like right. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so we did it was, some of that. We definitely did. We went to like a yeah. camp, you know, yeah. in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Oh yeah, and we were. I think I went. To, I went to a camp in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I did. Did you go to the the Vivekananda camp? <laughs> it was the Swadia camp. I don't know if you've heard of Swadia. It's all kind of the same, like Chinmaya yeah. Mission. Yeah, like, we did. My, hus Vivekan my husband's half Jain as well, so ah. his, his yeah. mom is his Jain, and so. Um, he feels close to Jainism as well. So the girls are kind of, they learn about both, you know? Yeah, and so, yeah. um, but nowadays, like what I, all I'm doing right now, not all I'm doing, uh, I, I am trying to incorporate culture at least. Yeah. And just, we go to like the, there's ICC classes in Greenwich every Sunday. It's called All About India. Mm -hmm. And they just at least learn about the country and, the, you know, what a sorry. I mean, it's something. Yeah. Yeah. Your journey uh, that you talked about during the TED Talk, and I'm sure in your book, to find God or while you were stalking God was super interesting. Would you ever do a part two? Ooh, yeah, I would. I would do a part two um, in a different format. So probably not. What would the format be? Do you know? Um, I think, you know, I've been approached about doing it in different formats, whether. Okay. 
TV or a podcast or something else. And so it's being kicked around. We'll see. Yeah. Would you, I think would you take potential. your daughter or husband with you or is this like a kind of I a solo think, thing? I think they would not come with me. <laughs> My husband thinks it's all a little bit out there. He's very comfortable with you know his scientific approach to the universe. Um, my daughter, I think, would have a kick going with me. I think it'd be really fun, you know. But I think school might get in the way. You know, that's a, that's definitely one way to bond with your mom. Yeah, she yeah. she already thinks I'm a little loony, so I don't know if it's gonna <laughs> help if she saw me like chanting Aww. for hours in a. You know what though? It's good cut. she thinks you're loony. She knows yeah. who your mom is. My yeah. girls think I'm. They don't even. Sometimes they're like, "Mom," I'm like, "Yeah, girls, trust me. I was crazier yeah. before. Right? I'm, cal- I'm calmer now. That's yeah. awesome. I will have to definitely check out the book. And then any future books in the works? Oh, you know, I'm kicking around some ideas. Again, I've been a person to write some things or to think about what my next book might be. And I always thought I didn't have an idea. Um, but I kind of had something percolating. And then last week, it sort of came back up. So we'll see. Okay. It's a, it's percolating. It would be a different book than this, but maybe directionally similar, but not about spirituality. I feel like, I is it I true you, you write the first book and it's kind of like the big baby and then you feel like, like you feel like you can... Not you feel like you can do it again, but like it's just the second time around is probably not as nerve wracking or no? Uh, I don't know because I think I never set out to write a book. I wasn't a writer growing up. I never considered myself a writer or particularly interested right. in writing. Frankly, right. and, you know, I did it for school, but it wasn't something that I thought I was good at or you know, was like Enjoy it as a goal. Right. Yeah, it just wasn't a goal. And so it, I'm sort of an accidental author, I think. And so when the book came out, I was like, never again. Like not because it was torturous, it was a really fun process, but it wasn't something I set out to do. So it wasn't something that I was like, and for my next book, I'll do this. You know, I just didn't have another right, idea. Right. So I think I would only write something if I had a really fun idea or interesting idea that I felt needed to be you know, put out into the world in this format and that I was the right person to right. do it. Otherwise, there's so many great writers out there who deserve shelf space <laughs> in our limited libraries. Yeah. Writing is not easy. I'm an accidental writer too. I'm not an author, mm-hmm. but became a freelance writer. We lived in India for three years and I nice. didn't want to practice law. So I was like, I'm going to write for Condé Nast and pitch them 18 ideas. And they finally just said yes. So um, <laughs> I like the accidental writer part. Yeah. COVID Tech Connect. Yeah, You are a co-founder. Yes. Okay. So super ama- great uh, idea. What was the impetus to launch this? I mean, I kind of get the impetus. And, you know, how did it all start? Well, you know, in April, March, April 2020, when everything was shutting down, um, you know, it was really hard to be told to sit still and to not do anything. And I'm very much a doer and I like to identify problems and solve them, I think. That's part of the lawyer training in me, but it was yeah. it was very hard to not do anything. And so I found myself just doing everything, like whatever I could do from my computer, or from my house um, to help, whether it was helping get masks donated to hospitals or whatever, you know, like doing like drives to like get snacks to the healthcare workers or whatever, like we sort right. of came up with a million projects, um, just very grassrootsy, you know, small things that we could do to help me and friends and colleagues. And COVID Tech Connect came out of a very specific situation where one of my colleagues, one of my co-founders, um, got a text message from a friend of hers who was a nurse in New York City. And she was describing this whole situation um, that she was encountering as a nurse in the early days of the pandemic in New York, where she was having to use her own cell phone to help facilitate FaceTime conversations between 
people who were isolated due to COVID diagnosis and um, dying and unable to say goodbye to their loved ones because nobody was allowed in the hospital at the time because of COVID. And it was just like a heartbreaking thought and an already devastating situation. And when I heard this, myself and a few other friends who became co-founders of this initiative, we sort of sprang into action because we're like, well, this is ridiculous. This is a problem that can be solved. Like we can, we know people, you know, I worked at Google for many years. I have a lot of connections in the tech industry as do some of my colleagues. And we're like, well, we're just gonna make a bunch of calls and solve this problem. And so that's how it started. It was really just like, let's get a few tablets to this hospital. And then we realized the problem was not just going to be at this hospital. It was unfortunately going to be very widespread. And it was something that we could solve through technology. So it wasn't tech in search of a solution or in search of a problem. It was really tech and a unique position to address a real problem. And so that's how it started. And so myself and there were six of us total who were the co-founders of the initiative. And then two of us had sort of stuck with the project to the end. We're actually wrapping up in the next few weeks. Um, we were able to raise a bunch of money through individual donations, through some very large anonymous donations, some corporate giving, and were able to purchase um, 20,000 tablets wow. to donate to hospitals across the country. Okay. And so that's what we did. And it's been, you know, it's been an amazing initiative. We did a lot of other stuff as well, like donated charging cords and cases and like sure. a bunch of other things. Um, but it was something that was sort of born of a moment and really necessary. And it's one of those weird things that like as a nonprofit initiative, it's very unlikely or unusual to actually reach your goal and then yeah. it goes down. And I think we never set out to start a nonprofit in a way. We just sort of were like, oh, let's buy a hundred tablets and give it to this one hospital. Right. Um, but it turned into a much bigger thing because it was a problem we were able to solve and that we had the connections to do and execute on. Um, and I'm I'm very, you know, humbled by what we were able to achieve in a short time. And I'm really glad that we're winding it down. Congratulations. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's funny because like, obviously, how important is that for these patients to have that access? I mean, it's something you don't even think about if you're not in the situation, yeah. you know, yeah. and just giving them that, it's like comfort, really, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so congrats on that. I thought that was a super amazing idea. The other thing we kind of have in common, besides, I think, knowing Monica, <laughs> me knowing Monica, <laughs> meaning you were a attorney for Acumen Fund. Yeah. I was okay. the general counsel, the first GC. Okay. I was a, I mean, just a volunteer. I was part of the Dubai group uh, oh, for nice. two years and did this presentation for Jacqueline. And oh, amazing. was so excited to meet her. Um, and just when we had moved there as expats, again, for my husband's job, I'm like, like you, I'm like, what do I do now? What do I do? I can't sit yeah. around, sit around. And so um started just just helping them out. So yeah, love okay. love the Acumen Fund for She's sure. She's the best. Yeah. I just she really, that. really is. Yeah. I forced her to take selfies with me. <laughs> and uh, you know, I don't want to name all the boards you're on because you are on many. Again, I don't know how you're standing up, my friend. Love to hear about one of the boards you're on, one of the organizations that you're passionate. I'm sure you're passionate about all of them, but just any one of them you'd like to talk about. Yeah, it's hard. It's like choosing between my babies. I, I know. I know. Happy all. money. I, I fund women, women's yeah. world baking, glow science. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, So I, you know, I have sort of two buckets of board work. So there's, you know, the for-profit companies, which are happy money, I fund women, glow yeah. science. Um, and then there's a whole bucket of nonprofits. So I'll focus on those just because those need the airtime and the funding. And so um, I've sat on many nonprofit boards over my career and continue to just because I 
you know, I have a really hard time saying no to things that I care about. And I feel like if I can move the needle on something, then I'm happy right. to, to do my part. Um, and in these few situations, it's been where as a board member, I can actually be really effective. Um, I currently have narrowed it down to two boards that I'm currently serving on, uh, which are Amplifier and POV, which is okay. the documentary arm of PBS, is sort of the shorthand for it. So both, you know, arts-based organizations, um, but in my mind, very activist-based organizations. So it's a way for me to channel a lot of my outrage and uh, discontent with what the state of the world through art or arts-related initiatives. So that's why I've sort of honed in on those two, because it feels like we can hit a lot of issues through the work that we're supporting and help amplify, you know, those those causes um, in right. a meaningful way. So that's where I've kind of Hey, learned. if you're going to, that's the probably the healthiest way to uh, channel your frustrations. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to do it, you do it that way. Yeah. Obviously this is a podcast that focuses on South Asian trailblazers. So I got to ask a little bit about your, your growing up Brown. I know you went to Brown university, JD from Boston university school of law. Mm -hmm. uh, so growing up typical Indian household, parents conservative, were you allowed to date? Oh, no. Uh, good questions. Okay, so we're going way back machines. So oh, yeah. I was raised outside of Chicago in the suburbs. And yeah, my parents are pretty traditional. I mean, yeah. not like super, super lockdown conservative. They were assimilated for sure. I mean, they were, they were pretty um, assimilated, but they... They're definitely not letting me date. They didn't let me do sleepovers. That was their big thing. Like, really? Never allowed to sleep over at somebody's house, except for the Indian friends. Yes. <laughs> Indian okay, same, friends were same. fine. Yeah. Yep. Indian friends were fine, but no non-Indian friend, which I always thought was really weird. But um, it's funny. Now my daughter has some peers who are first generation Indian, and they're not allowed to do sleep sleepovers either. So I was like, is this like a Desi thing? But I, I don't know if it is or not. But I wasn't allowed to till middle school. Yeah, I know. I just wasn't allowed to. Super weird. Yeah, yeah I don't know it's why. actually pretty common. I've heard. Yeah, oh, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, so that that was the. I, I mean, family there. friends. Actually, they threw me over there at four. They're like, "Yeah, go sleep over." Like, yeah, it was, totally. It, 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 it was the Swabia religious family friends are like, "Go, go, go." Yeah, totally. Like my like Monica, <laughs> our yeah. mutual friend. I mean, I would be like dropped off to her house for like days on end, and my other <laughs> best friend, our <laughs> other best friend, Simi. They lived about an hour away from us, and it was literally like in the summer, our parents would leave us, like send us off after a party with like nothing. You know, we didn't have like clothes for the week or anything because we would just like insist on a sleepover, and they wouldn't pick us up for a week because they couldn't be bothered to drive <laughs> to totally. a house to pick us up. Like that's one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> totally happened. We to just like too. end up at each other's houses for like a week on end and then and, and it was awesome yeah it was amazing and then they would yeah. meet downtown because they still didn't want to drive to each other's houses to do the pickup so they would meet halfway <laughs> and like drop us off on a street corner and we would run into our respective cars so yeah. that was no sleepovers and no need for cell phones no totally I mean, none of that stuff yeah so, so it was like whatever you're fine you're a thunk yeah. uncle um so yeah, no sleepovers no seatbelts no no sleepovers no uh no dating no dating. Um, did you have to, did you date behind their backs? Did you? I mean, a little bit, but honestly, I mean, I'm guessing nobody is listening to this from my community. Like, you know, none of the, the this is a Brown podcast. So there are like five of us in school. So I'm not worried about this getting out, but I feel like there's nobody worth getting in trouble for. When my yeah. people, like I was good. So, you know, there were, there was nobody that I was like, I need to sneak off with this boy and 
and really make trouble at home. It's like, yeah. I'll wait till school ends and go to college and then yeah. do whatever I want. So, I had the same, I had no, I had the same, not problem, I guess. No problem. I was, uh, I wasn't the slickest kid. So yeah. it was definitely the tomboy. Never got asked to a dance. And so right. I was like, my parents had nothing. <laughs> Even if I tried, <laughs> nothing was going to happen. Totally like funny. I had to get set up for prom. So oh. like, this is where I was at. Okay. Well, yeah. I no, I mean, I, I was allowed to go to prom both my junior and senior year. Oh, no. I um, went. I just didn't get asked. Like my friends oh, had to hook, hook me up. So oh, my parents it. basically had nothing to worry about. Yeah. No, my parents, like they were kind of okay with like, you know, like when guys would ask me out once in a while, it was fine. But like I think they kind of perceived the boy is like reasonably non-threatening. Yeah. Um, I don't know why, why they decided. So they were, they were kind of okay with it, but they weren't encouraging it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Your parents seem very chill. They're pretty chill. I mean, they uh, have their own neuroses, but they were, yeah, they were reasonably chill. They weren't like fully, you know, Americanized by any stretch, but they were definitely um, like the threat of moving back to India looms large, even if it wasn't a real threat. You know, they when did they to... when did they immigrate here, and, and what for? Um, my dad came in the '60s for his graduate work for his PhD at Columbia, and then my mom came in '69 when they got married. Hey, same with my parents. Yeah. My dad came in '66 for to go to Clemson, uh-huh. and then my mom came in '69. There you go. Small, tiny, ninety-pound, twenty-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> she keeps telling me that she was like, "I used to be ninety pounds." I'm like, "I know, mom. You told me." And then, in terms of career, were your parents like doctor, engineer, lawyer, or did they was where did you decide your path because you wanted it? So they were doctor. I don't think we knew any lawyers growing up. So it was very much doctor. Like that's okay. what you do is right. you would, why would you do anything else? Like you're right. smart at math and science and this is what Indian people do. Yep. Um, so I went to college thinking I was pre-med and finished college completing pre-med stuff, but then realized like in my first year that the idea of me being a doctor was just completely absurd and I would have been terrible at it. Yeah. And I never did like internships. Everybody else was like volunteering at a lab or like, you know, working in a hospital and doing other stuff. And I was like, get me out of here. I'm working at like art galleries and all this other stuff. Like I worked at the Fila store in, in the <laughs> of Chicago you know, or downtown Chicago at the mall. Um, I was doing anything but that. Um, so I don't know why I completed all my pre-med coursework. I think I just didn't want to, you know, not do it and then realize they were right and then have to go back to school. So I yeah. did it. And then I never took like the MCAT or applied to med school or anything. Like I Well, what I did was got to I went to UT Austin, got there freshman year, maybe barely passed organic like got a D. <laughs> and my parents were like, oh, you're not good at this. I'm like, no, I am <laughs> not good at this. Um and so that was my my brother became a doctor already. So I was like, okay, you got one. Right. Right. Let me let me, let me be now. Right. Uh, so then so then why the pivot to law school? Was that this kind it was of like sort a, of on a whim. Yeah, yeah. I was a biomedical ethics major in college, which right. um was again a way of me sort of integrating some of the pre-med coursework into something I was actually interested in, which was ethics and religious studies and all this other stuff, like the sort of thinking aspect right. of of school. I really liked that broad exposure and it was multidisciplinary. I mean, I guess were, the signs were all along that I would want to do a bunch of different things because even the major that I took on was um, you know, a mixed major, really. It was like comp lit and religious studies and biology and like a bunch of different things that came together right. to make a major. Um and so I really applied to law school on a whim. I have to be honest. I was like, I don't want to go to med school. Let me think of something else to do. And I took the LSAT 
on a whim. I mean, it's really not advisable. Like nobody should follow. This is not useful data for anybody. I just was like, I guess I'll go to law school. It was really okay. So again, I'm following your life because it's exactly what I did. Really? <laughs> Took it on a whim because I did not want to go to med school. So yeah. I was like, what else can I do that's not med school, but my parents would be happy about? I After UT, I had a, my first job was at Enron. Uh-huh didn't work out for some reason. Um, and then I moved to India for a year and became a backup dancer for like all these pop stars. <laughs> so fun. And so then my parents were like, get your ass back here. And I just, yeah, just <laughs> took the LSATs, just went on a whim. I was like, sure, yeah. I'll move to Chicago. Totally fine. So, so that goes into my next question for you. Looking back at your journey, two things. One, does it all make sense now? Has it all come together now? And then two, looking back at all the decisions you made for different opportunities, do you feel like it was intentional decisions? Do you feel like opportunities presented itself or was it a mix? Um, so I think I can sort of answer both questions maybe in one, yeah. one answer, but I think, yeah, it was definitely a mix. You know, it was a mix of um, happenstance and being opportunistic of the things that kind of presented themselves and feeling like, the doors that were closing, I was okay with closing by taking that next step and that the doors that would open were things that I couldn't anticipate. And so that was sort of the the way I've made decisions. And I was like, oh, I'm interested to go in this, decision, this direction. And, you know, my curiosity is being piqued to kind of follow that path. Um, and whatever opportunities come of this, I can't really anticipate. And that was always exciting to me. Like I didn't want to have a clear roadmap, I think. Yeah. Um, because I think once I sort of got myself off that pre-med track yeah. um, and kind of threw the chessboard up in the air, which is so silly because it's like I went to law school. It's like, what a rebel. You know, like it's like the dumbest <laughs> thing to do. Like how much of a rebel can I possibly be when I went to law school? I, but, I, I say that about myself too. So I'm, yeah. sti- I'm sticking with it. Sticking yeah, with it. I'm the rebel for my family. Exactly, exactly. Right. I was a rebel in my community. I was like, yeah. whoa, what is she yeah. doing? Law yeah. Like that's so crazy. Yeah. But um I think I didn't have that prescribed path in front of me. So I was kind of just doing whatever was interesting to me. And uh, you know, I've been lucky. It's worked out. Like I've been, you know, I've worked hard obviously too. It's not just luck. I don't mean to be like, you know, dismissive of of what I've put forward, but it's um it has been a lot of opportunity that's presented itself and a fruitful conversation or, you know, and you being open somebody. to it, right? Yeah, like, absolutely, ha- absolutely. Making sure that you're, you are open to these ideas, have your, I mean, otherwise opportunities, I think, present themselves to a lot of us, but people just aren't aware of them or acknowledge it, I guess, maybe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, so, I definitely pay attention and I, yeah. I look, I look for it or I'm super open to it, as you said. And, and I recognize that, if I don't pay attention, then it, you know, then it's for somebody else. Like that's okay too. I'm not. Right. I don't like regret passing on things, and I feel like things have, have kind of directionally worked out. So yeah. so far, that's so awesome. good. Love yeah. it. Same philosophy. A few <laughs> more questions. Who uh, would you love to collaborate with? Collaborate with dream collaboration, or a partnership, or or even just interview. In what context? Advise, work with, uh, podcast, interview, uh, start mm. start a new project with. I, you know, it kind of in your many hats, whatever, whichever one you want to pick, Gosh. or have you know even have dinner with. Have dinner with? Oh, that's interesting. Who would I want to have dinner with right now? 
You know, honestly, coming out of the pandemic, I really just want to see my friends and my family. Aww, so I would yeah. like to have, I know it's super cheesy, but it's true. No, like fun. I would love to just have a big dinner with everybody I love in one room. And like know that nobody will get COVID out of it. That would be <sighs> my ideal. At the end of your career, what would you like to be known for? Uh, being kind and being right. <laughs> I love it. You're a lawyer for sure. <laughs> what advice do you give your daughter about her career path? Ooh, well, A, that she definitely does not have to know what she wants to do because she's only 12 and that she can have many iterations of it, you know, that she will change and evolve in her lifetime. And so she doesn't need to know at age 12 or 18 or 25 what she wants yeah. to do for the rest of her life because she will be a very different person on a cellular level right. at each of those points. And so it's okay to to change what you want to do. Love it. Definitely. I, again, found myself at 40. So mm -hmm. it's okay. And I might find myself again at 50. Who knows? Exactly. It's kind of exciting. I know you mentioned maybe the potential idea of another book. Um, any other future projects that you could talk about or people on the podcast coming up that you would like to talk about? Oh, we have some good guests coming up on the podcast. So uh, I think our next release are some soccer stars, Ali Krieger and Ashlyn Harris are coming out this week, next week. Uh, Christy Charlington Burns is Oh my God, on. love her. She's amazing. She's a good friend and she's just lovely. Yeah. Who else do we have coming out? Hank Willis Thomas, the artist. Mm -hmm. uh, Melody Asani. We've got some really great people, like a really nice mix of interesting people from different fields um, that are coming on to talk to us. We're pretty excited about that. I just basically made her my mentor without asking, but you know, this is how I roll on the podcast. You guys, please check out her podcast, The Important Things with Bobby Brown and Anjali Kumar on all podcast platforms and go check out her site, anjalikumar.com. And that kind of covers all her creative and entrepreneurial ventures. She's done a lot of stuff great woman to get advice from and work with. As always, you can follow me at TuckerDoutPodcast, TuckerDoutWithAmi.com. I now have seven weeks left to live on the East Coast. We are officially moving to Dallas at the end of June and all sorts of emotions with moving. Love, love, love the East Coast. I think I have an East Coast soul, but you know, my love for Texas runs deep. Uh, it's home, family's there. You know, Texas has a few things to work on, but we'll talk about that when I move there. So anyways, in the midst of this madness, I will be bringing you more fantastic interviews, uh, taking a break in June for a couple weeks, and then we'll be back. All right, kids, time to go figure out my life. Thank you guys for listening. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>